Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 27th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Lately, we have been discussing Christian identity, vision, and objectives in presentations with Mark Downey, and again in a recent article posted at Christogenia, which summarized some of the things that we said in those presentations. Here we are going to offer what may be, what may at first seem to be like a strange mix, especially to those who have not heard us speak about Adolf Hitler and National Socialism. This subject we have not touched on now for many months, perhaps almost two years. What might seem to some to be a strange mix has a definite purpose. I would deplore you not to accept the Anglo-American Jewish propaganda concerning 20th century history. It absolutely amazes me that so many fools who claim to be identity Christians, and especially quote-unquote pastors, still do accept all of those Jewish lies. I encounter so many identity Christians in social media that are all over the map on certain issues that, if they would only study, we would probably all come very close to agreement on. But they listen to rodeo clowns like Ted Whelan or Jewish circus clowns like Rabbi November. And they're all over the map on these things because these people have agendas and they don't study for themselves. Tonight I want to summarize, at least in part, what has happened in Europe and throughout the West in recent history, what is happening now as a result of that history, and also offer a summary of the proper perspective which identity Christians should have of both the events of recent history, at least these events I'm about to discuss, and more importantly, of the place which we must assume for ourselves within the context of that history. All the Jews stand for lies, and we must at least seek to stand for truth. To help us accomplish this objective, we are going to present our recent article. But first, we are going to present what is commonly known as Adolf Hitler's last speech. It was a radio address to the German folk made on January 30th, 1945. While it is short, we are going to read all of it, because it describes an earlier stage in the very same battle that our white race faces once again today. Except that comparatively, whites as a collective people today are more like the Germans of 1922 than they are of 1933 or 1945. The speech is addressed to the German Volksgenossen, which are the National Comrades, and to the National Socialists, 
and ostensibly both labels were used to refer to the same people. Now it's true that the modern Germans are just as lost as the modern Americans. Of course they've been denazified and reprogrammed so that modern Germany is really no more of an extension no, no more than an extension of modern Brooklyn and your average yeshiva or the average American public school. This version of the speech, this radio address from January 30th, 1945, is from a collection published online in PDF format, found at the website nseuropa.org, a website operated anonymously, but hosted since January of 2012 by our own labors at Christagenia. And we don't even know who the, who, who the, the website operator is, and that's the way it must be kept. There is another translation of this speech available which is more commonly posted at various internet websites. However, we believe this translation to be the more eloquent. We do not know the identity of the translator, or even if this has ever been published in print. So here we will begin our presentation of this speech. We've compared the two texts of the two, the two different translations at great length. When Adolf Hitler begins, when 12 years ago the now deceased Reich President von Hindenburg entrusted me as the leader of the strongest party with the chancellorship, Germany faced the same situation at home as it does today abroad with regard to international politics. Initiated and carried out according to the plan through the Versa Treaty of Versailles, the process of the economic destruction and annihilation of the Democratic Republic led to a situation that was slowly being regarded as permanent. Nearly 7 million unemployed, 7 million part-time workers, ruined peasants, destroyed trade, and a corresponding breakdown of commerce. The German ports were only ship cemeteries, the financial situation of the Reich threatened at any moment to lead to the collapse, not only of the nation, but also of the provinces and the local communities. However, what was decisive was the following. Behind this systematic economic destruction of Germany was the specter of Asian Bolshevism, just as today in 1945. And just as, on a large scale today, the bourgeois world, on a much smaller scale, was completely incapable, in the years before our seizure of power, of effectively opposing this development. Even after the collapse of the year 1918, it was still not recognized that an old world was passing away and a new world was being born. 
It was not a question of supporting by all means what had become decayed or rotten and artificially preserving it, but a question of the necessity of replacing it with something visibly healthy. A bygone social order had broken down, and Hitler is talking about the classical medieval nobility, the bourgeois world. They no longer had control in the age of industrialization and international stock exchanges, where the wealth of the nation was being transferred into the hands of these newcomers that Hitler spoke of. He talked about that at length in Mein Kampf. And he understood that the international stock exchanges took the power which should have been wielded by native Germans, took the power over the people and the economy and put it in the hands of these outsider aliens who had the money to buy up all the stock. And, of course, we know who they are. A bygone social order had broken down, and any attempt to maintain it was bound to fail. Thus, it was no different from what is happening now on a large scale, when, likewise, the bourgeois states are doomed, and only national communities, which possess a clear orientation and are ideologically fortified, have a chance of surviving this gravest European crisis in many centuries. And he's talking about the looming Bolshevik crisis, which threatened Germany after the First War. We were granted only six years of peace after January 30th, 1933. In these six years, we secured so many tremendous accomplishments and planned even greater ones, so many and such great things, that we all the more elicited the envy of our democratic, good-for-nothing surrounding world. What was decisive, however, was that we succeeded with superhuman efforts in these six years in reorganizing the defense of the body of the German nation, which meant not so much giving it the material military strength as the spiritual power of resistance necessary for self-assertion. The gruesome fate, which is today overwhelming the East, and which exterminates tens and hundreds of thousands of human beings in villages and market towns, in the countryside and in the cities, and he's talking about things like the starvation of the Ukraine and all of the other evils that the Jewish Bolsheviks had perpetrated in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. The gruesome fate which is today overwhelming the East and which exterminates tens and hundreds of thousands of human beings in villages and market towns, in the countryside and in the cities, will, with the, the utmost effort, be parried and overcome by us, despite all setbacks and severe trials. This is the hope and faith that Hitler had in his cause. This is January of 1945. If this is at all possible, 
than it is because since the year 1933 an interchange has taken place in the German folk. If a Germany of the Versailles Treaty still existed today, Europe would long have been swept away by the Central Asian floods. Adolf Hitler understood that world Jewry sought not only to rule over Germany economically, but also sought the destruction of German blood. For instance, he expressed the problems caused by the French occupation of the Rhineland, which in the era after the First Great War had, as he said in Mein Kampf in Volume 2, Chapter 13, the Rhineland had become a playground for hordes of African niggers, as Murphy translated the word, and as Ford protests, saying that they should be called black people. In response to the immigration policies of the bourgeois nationalists, the capitalists of 19th century Germany, Hitler had said in Mein Kampf, in chapter 2 of volume 2 those people did not understand and this is why Hitler had no regard for the bourgeois nationalists or the German capitalists of the 19th century those people did not understand that a policy of Germanization can be carried out only as regards human beings what they mostly meant by Germanization was a process of forcing other people to speak the German language. But it is almost inconceivable how such a mistake could be made as to think that a nigger or a Chinaman will become a German because he has learned a German language and is willing to speak German for the future and even to cast his vote for a German political party. That's the Jewish mindset that Americans and most of the rest of the West had long ago adopted. Our bourgeois nationalists could never clearly see that such a process of Germanization is, in reality, de-Germanization. For even if all the outstanding and visible differences between the various peoples could be bridged over and finally wiped out by the use of a common language, that would produce a process of bastardization, which in this case would not signify Germanization, but the annihilation of the German element just like certain Jews cry out that these alien populations amongst us today should be absorbed and, and become like us. And that would just annihilate our own racial element. As Hitler had feared, Germany indeed suffered at the hands of the Central Asian hordes in the aftermath of the war. However, in recent history, the treachery is even greater, as hundreds of thousands of Turks, Arabs, and Negers are admitted into Germany freely, and even granted the houses and the money and the daughters of Germans for the troubles of making the journey. Continuing with Hitler's speech, there is no need to discuss with blockheads who will never die out and who are of the opinion that a defenseless Germany would not 
had become the victim of this Jewish international world conspiracy because of its impotence. That is nothing more than turning the laws of nature upside down. In other words, militarization is not to be blamed. Militarization under Hitler is not to be blamed for the destruction of Germany because the Jews were already destroying Germany during the Weimar period. Hitler says, since when does the fox not kill the defenseless goose just because the goose is not aggressive by nature? And since when does a wolf become a pacifist because the sheep does not wear armor? That, as I said earlier, there are bourgeois sheep who believe that nonsense in all earnestness just proves how necessary it was to eliminate an era whose educational system was capable of breeding such personalities, sustaining them, and granting them political influence, as all the rest of the West has been doing now for several centuries. Long before, Hitler says, long before National Socialism came to power, a merciless, a merciless fight against this Jewish-Asiatic Bolshevism was already raging. And he's talking about what was going on in the nations of Central and Eastern Europe. The resistance being put up to the Bolsheviks by the Ukrainians, by the Poles, by the Hungarians. Hitler says, if it did not invade Europe as early as the years 1919 to 1920, it failed only because it was too weak at the time and too poorly armed. Its attempt to eliminate Poland was not abandoned because of compassion for the Polish, but because of the lost Battle of Warsaw. Its intention to destroy Hungary was never realized, not because it reconsidered, but because the Bolshevik force could not be sustained militarily. Likewise, the attempt to shatter Germany was not abandoned because its success was no longer desired, but because it was not possible to eliminate the rest of our folks' natural will to resist, and that will was demonstrated by the actions of the Free Corps after the communist uprisings in Germany, notably in Munich, but also in the north, in Hamburg, in the early 1920s. Hitler says, Jewry then immediately started the systematic breakdown of our folk. By doing so, it found the best allies in those stubborn citizens who did not wish to admit that the age of the bourgeois world was over and would never return. In other words, the noblemen who sold out to the Jews. The Habsburgs are a prime example of that. That the ethic of unrestrained, unrestrained economic liberalism belonged to the past and could only lead to collapse. That the great tasks of the present can only be managed by the authoritarian concentrated strength of the nation 
based on the law of equal rights for all and resulting in equal duties, which in turn means that the fulfillment of these equal duties will inevitably lead to equal rights. Thus, National Socialism, in the midst of a gigantic economic, social, and cultural reconstruction, gave the German folk an armament, particularly in terms of education. That alone was suited to be transformed into military values. The power of resistance of our nation has grown so tremendously since January 30th, 1933, that it can no longer be compared with the earlier epoch. To maintain this inner power of resistance is therefore the surest guarantor of the final victory. If today Europe is the victim of a serious illness, then the effective state, affected states will either have to overcome it by summoning their entire and utmost power of resistance, or they will be doomed. But the convalescent, that is, the survivor, overcomes the climaxes of such an illness only in a crisis that greatly weakens him. It is therefore all the more our unchanging will not to shrink from anything in this struggle to rescue our folk from this most gruesome fate of all time and to obey steadfastly and loyally the commandment of the preservation of our nation. The Almighty has created our folk. The alternate translation freely available on the Internet has God the Almighty has made our nation. By continuing its existence, we defend His creation that this defense is connected with nameless misfortune, suffering, and pain without equal, lets us become all the more attached to this folk. However, it also lets us gain that hardness, which is necessary for doing our duty even at the worst crisis points. This means not only our duty toward the decent, eternal Germany, but also our duty toward those few men without honor who divorce themselves from their folk. And obviously he's referring to at least some of the many traitors against the German cause in the later years of the war. And there will be, some of them will be addressed again later. We can argue about Hitler's application of his faith, but we cannot argue about the substance of his faith. He truly believed that in his struggle against Jewish Bolshevism, he was defending the creation of God. In the first volume of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, we read in the closing words of chapter 2 the following. Should the Jew, with the aid of his Marxist creed, triumph over the people of this world, his clown will be the funeral wreath of mankind, and this planet will once again follow its orbit through ether without any human life on its surface, as it did millions of years ago, 
And so I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator, standing in guard against the Jew. I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. Men without any spiritual foundations. Men without the internal fortitude of spirit which comes only from a solid conviction of faith. These men float from one position to another. They move from paradigm to paradigm, seeking a means by which they can justify their actions. That's George Bush. This was not Adolf Hitler. Rather, Hitler was consistent in his philosophy concerning God and nation from beginning to end. And he maintained his position from the rise of his political career to the last days leading up to its certain destruction. And while those same convictions led to his destruction and the destruction of the nation which he loved, that destruction, as he explains here, was inevitable anyway. But he never turned his back on them. He kept those same convictions. Here we see that in 1945, Adolf Hitler was expressing the exact same religious conviction concerning his race and nation, which he had expressed in Mein Kampf when Mein Kampf was first written before 1925, over 20 years later. If a man is going to lose a war, or loses life, he is better off doing it by defending his faith, as Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man for what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Likewise, Adolf Hitler and his National Socialists were fighting against the same people who had killed Christ. To continue with Hitler, therefore, there was only one commandment for us in this faithful struggle. Who fights honorably can save his own life and that of his loved ones. He who would risk to lose his life would save it. Who f attacks the nation from behind as a spineless coward will under any circumstances die a shameful death. And Hitler had correctly observed that that is also how Germany at the very end of the first great war what it should have been the victor had found defeat. That National Socialism has 
awakened and reinforced this spirit in our German folk is its greatest accomplishment. Once the bells of peace ring out after this mighty international drama has subsided and Hitler had the brightest of hopes, then people will realize that the German folk owes to this spiritual rebirth. People will realize what the German folk owes to this spiritual rebirth. It is no less than its existence in this world, because Hitler understood that if he did not fight the Bolsheviks, Germany would be destroyed by the Bolsheviks anyway. What most Americans don't understand is that the Jews of England and the Jews of New York were controlling Britain and America to join the Bolsheviks in their destruction of Europe. That's what we did. There's no other reason why we fought the Second World War, except to help the Jews, help the Bolsheviks, who were also Jews, in the destruction of Europe, so that Jewish corporations could control Germany and the rest of Europe. The Rothschild bankers on down. A few months ago, and weeks ago, the Allied statesmen still spoke openly about Germany's fate. Then a few papers admonished them that it would be wiser if they would rather make promises, even though there was no intention of keeping these promises. As a relentless National Socialist and fighter for my folk, I would like to assure these other statesmen, once and for all, at this hour, that any attempt to impress National Socialist Germany with phrases of Wilson's type, because it was the Wilson's, I believe it was 14 points, which had persuaded the Germans to capitulate in the First Great War. But then once the Germans capitulated, Wilson betrayed them and did not insist that France and England maintain the offer that Wilson made them. Would a Wilson betrayed the German cause at Versailles? by not keeping his word, like the typical whore for the Jew would do. And that's all Wilson was as well. However, it is not at all important that <coughs> excuse me, that in the democracies political activities and lies go hand in hand. What is important is that any promise these statesmen give a nation is completely insignificant today, because they are no longer in a position to follow through on any such assurance. That is no different from one sheep, one sheep's assuring another that it will protect it against the tiger. In opposition to that, I repeat my prophecy. Not only will England 
not be in a position to tame Bolshevism, but its own development will follow the inevitable course of this degenerative disease. The democracies can no longer get rid of the spirits they themselves have summoned up from the steppes of Asia. And as long as Hitler's speaking about Jews there, he's absolutely correct. And England, well, history proves that Hitler was right in that aspect as well. England may as well be a Bolshevik state today, overrun by niggers with a Marxist socialism. All the small European nations which capitulated trusting in the Allied assurances are heading for their complete extermination. Whether they meet this fate earlier or later is, in view of its inevitability, completely without significance. The Kremlin Jews are moved exclusively by tactical considerations in their decisions to proceed with brute force in one case and temporary restraint in the other. The end will always be the same. Germany will never suffer to save Hitler's own hope in ultimate victory, his hope that righteousness would prevail. He kept it right to the end. He kept it. Goebbels kept it. Many of the other National Socialist leaders kept it. Not all. Germany will never suffer this fate. The victory gained 12 years ago in the interior of our country guarantees this. Whatever our enemies may come up with, whatever suffering they may cause the German cities, the German landscapes, and above all, our people, pales in comparison with the incorrigible misery and misfortune that would hit all of us should the plutocratic Bolshevik conspiracy win. And Hitler understood that the Bolsheviks in Russia were agents of the plutocrats in the West, the Rothschild bankers, and they were. It is, therefore, all the more necessary on the twelfth anniversary of the seizure of power, to make one's heart stronger than ever before, and to harden oneself in the sacred resolve to take up arms, no matter where, no matter under what circumstances, until victory finally crowns our efforts. On this day, I would like to leave no doubt about one other thing, in spite of a hostile environment. At one time in the past I chose my way in the depth of my being, and I followed this path as an unknown, nameless man up to the final victory, often proclaimed dead and always wished dead. At long last I was the victor. My present life is likewise being exclusively determined by the duties incumbent on me. Together they amount to only one duty, namely, to work for my folk and to fight for it. Only he can absolve me from this duty who has called on me to take it on. It was in Providence's hands to eliminate me through the bomb that went off only one and a half meters away from me on July 20th, and thereby to end my life's work.
Hitler is referring to first to God as he believed that God gave him the commission which he had and he believed that rightfully and then to the the Valkyrie plot against his life culminating in the bomb being planted at his headquarters in the Wolf's Lair in July of 1944 which almost did take Hitler's life but it didn't that the Almighty protected me on that day is something I regard as a confirmation of the mission I was assigned. I will therefore continue in the coming years to follow the path of the uncompromising representation of the interests of my folk, ignoring all need and danger and filled with the sacred conviction that the Almighty will, in the end, not abandon him who wanted nothing other all his life than to spare his vogue a fate it never deserved in terms of its numbers and significance. You know, these people like Jim Condit and everybody who accepts the harebrained idea that Hitler was a Bolshevik agent, that Hitler was a Rothschild agent. These people are total fools. Jim Condit is a total fool. Hitler kept his conviction and maintained that these Bolshevik Jews, these Marxist Jews, and these oligarch Jews in the West were all in league together. And that is true. And that can be established from history. Hitler was not their agent. He was their only adversary in a time when they could have come very close to controlling the entire world. Hitler and Mussolini to a lesser extent, and there were a few other Ger European politicians, <coughs> Cadreau in Romania comes to mind, and probably a few that whose whose names I forget. Cornelius Cadreau. These men were a few who recognized this problem who recognized, who drew the lines between these stock market capitalist Jews in the West and these Bolshevist Marxist Jews in the East and stood against them. And clowns like Jim Condit and clowns like Anthony Sutton, there's a big one, they do our entire race a disservice by peddling their bullshit they're actually covering for the Jews. We should not pay any attention to these clowns. We should ostracize them. Read what Hitler said. Read what he said all the way through to the end of his life. And you will know from beginning to end the man wasn't right about everything. But he was true. He was true to his faith, and he was true to his cause. He goes on to say, I therefore appeal in this hour to the entire German folk but especially to my old comrades in arms and all soldiers who are at its head to arm themselves with an even greater 
hardened spirit of resistance until as once before we can lay on the grave of the dead of this mighty struggle a wreath with a bow inscribed saying but you have triumphed in the end and I expect every German therefore to fulfill his duty to the utmost and to take on every sacrifice that will be and must be demanded of him I expect of every healthy man that he risk life and limb in this battle I expect every ill infirm or otherwise indispensable man to work with the utmost effort I expect the inhabitants of the cities to forge the weapons for this fight and I expect every farmer to give bread to the soldiers and workers of this fight by limiting his own consumption as much as possible I expect all women and girls to support this fight with the utmost zeal as they have done up to now I turn to the German youth with a particular confidence by forming such a committed community we have the right to step before the Almighty and ask him for his mercy and blessings after all a nation cannot do more than this those who can fight fight those who can work work and all come together to sacrifice with only one thought in mind to secure freedom national honor and a future for life no matter how grave the price crisis may be at this moment we will overcome it in the end in spite of everything thanks to our unchangeable will our readiness to sacrifice and our abilities we will survive this misery in this fight too it is not Central Asia that will win but Europe and at its head will be the one nation which for one and a half millennia since the fall of Rome has represented Europe as its hegemonic power against the East and will represent it in the future our greater German Reich the German nation and that was Adolf Hitler's last official public speech we generally should not trust post-war sources of statements attributed to Adolf Hitler which were not published or otherwise known to have existed before he died this is because since the end of the war opportunists and especially the Jews have tried to mold an image of Hitler which suits their own agendas the book table talk is one of these efforts and it consists mostly of utterly unreliable garbage but here I will quote one such post-war source because I know that he is really no fan of Adolf Hitler and has no apparent interest in portraying Hitler for anything other than he actually was we can put a modicum of trust in his research even if we do not agree with many of his conclusions that source is David Irving now Irving as many are misled to believe Irving is not a revisionist and there should be no doubt that Irving is an Anglophile
who upholds many of the false paradigms constructed to explain Hitler's purpose and intentions. So in many ways, Irving is just another court historian. <clears throat> However, where he presents material in English from original sources, and he is quite diligent to do that, which are otherwise little known, and absolutely inaccessible outside of certain German academic circles. The original material he presents is generally reliable. So on page 857 of the edition of David Irving's book, Hitler's War, which is freely available at his website, we see an account of Hitler's last days and some of his last words as they were recorded by Jacqueline von Ribbentrop at the Berlin bunker in April of 1945. And among them we read, for the first time, Hitler, and this is actually probably around April 20th or 21st, I forget the date, 1945, and among them we read, for the first time, Hitler now admitted to Ribbentrop that the war was lost. He dictated to Ribbentrop four secret negotiation points to put to the British if he got the chance. If the continent was to survive in a world dominated by Bolshevism, then somehow London and Berlin must bury the hatchet. He instructed Ribbentrop to write secretly to Churchill, in this sense. You will see, Hitler predicted, my spirit will arise from the grave one day. People will see that I was right. Anyone who is white and who has a conscience oriented towards the preservation of his white nation, race, or culture should clearly see today that Adolf Hitler was right. All you have to do to see that Adolf Hitler was right is listen to two minutes of Barbara Spector or two minutes of Annette Kahane. And in that sense, his spirit has indeed been resurrected and will always be resurrected. Because it is essentially the same spirit of our God and creator and of his Christ. The Jews killed him, they killed National Socialist Germany, and they seek to kill us as they lie to us about both Christ and Hitler. This is the essence of the challenge which all identity Christians should be prepared to face. One may be hot or cold, but one would rather not be caught lukewarm when the moment of decision arrives. This battle was not begun in 1914, or in 1933, or in 1939, or even as long ago as the year in which Christ was crucified. Rather, it was begun in Genesis chapter 3. Adolf Hitler had also said in volume 1, in chapter 10, of Mein Kampf, that the sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world. And it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. 
Likewise, in chapter 11 of that same volume, he said that the original sin committed in paradise has always been followed by the expulsion of the guilty parties. Adolf Hitler knew much more about Genesis than the vast majority of today's so-called theologians and clergymen. He knew much more about Genesis than clowns like Ted Wieland or James Brueggemann. He also understood that the international Jew is the eternal corrupter of blood and race, as we have seen demonstrated in so many ways throughout even our more recent history. This battle did not end in 1945, and it will not end until the final destruction of the enemies of Christ, which is the real holocaust of the Jew which has been promised in both testaments of our Bibles. Like his father Abraham, Adolf Hitler will also rejoice to see that day. And he will. But as Christ himself had warned in the Gospel, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 13, now, brother shall betray brother to death, and the father of the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Likewise, we are very much as Germans were, in 1922, with so many of our own people siding with the enemies of our race. As we have seen Hitler allude to in his speech, Germany also had its traitors, and those who would sell out their nation to the enemy, even attempting to kill their own brethren for reward. But we will prevail if, like Hitler, we also maintain our conviction steadfast until the end. As Paul of Tarsus exhorted, in a somewhat different manner, we should never lose focus of the prize. With this I am going to read my recent short article, The Christian Identity Objective, because I see our Christian identity struggle as the next and hopefully the final phase in the same great struggle which the National Socialists were fighting in Germany 70 years ago. And of course we are only incubating. And if I am wrong, and it is not, then apparently we have no hope at all. And if not for the return of our Christ, we have already lost. But we have faith that there is a God and that that God will not be mocked. So, we have obligation to fight the fight until he gets here. While this article represents many of the thoughts which I had expressed in the two recent discussions which were presented here, along with Mark Downey, there are also some ideas which were not expressed in those discussions, and which perhaps we may elaborate upon this evening. The hour is late, and all of the 
formerly Christian nations are overcome with the enemies of Christ, exactly what Adolf Hitler had tried to prevent. The dusk is far too advanced for Christians to be wasting precious time arguing over the place of beasts in the kingdom of God. When it should be obvious to all that after 500 years of trying to civilize and make Christians of them, there has been little but misery and failure, and they are still nothing but beasts. The Negro takes the image of Christ, remodels it in his own image, and destroys everything it touches in his name. The Oriental takes up the image of Christ, and adds it to his collection of mystical talismans with shark fins and tiger penises, imagining that it is just one more tool in the arsenal of idols that will help him to gratify his lusts. The Mexican takes up the image of Christ, but only as a little child, and then he worships the virgin instead, yearning for the fulfillment of its own beastly impulses. Their religions, the Negro, the Chinaman, the Mexican, their religions are all religions of lust. They pervert Christianity into a religion whereby they can facilitate the gratification of their lust, and they will never actually be Christians. Because they have no care for Christ or for the spiritual values which Christ truly represents. For a thousand years, the Jew had tried to destroy Christendom from the outside and had militarized both the African and the Asian beasts against the West. But they failed to destroy it. Do not be deceived. Islam is the invention of the Jews. And as soon as it appeared, the Jews used it to destroy both white North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. Likewise, the Turks are not Islamic by mistake, even though they crossed the Euphrates nearly 400 years after the followers of Mohammed had conquered Mesopotamia by the sword. They not, they too, the Turks were only a tool used by the Jews in the destruction of Christian Byzantium. And they used the Turks to invade Europe to this very day. But when the Jew failed to take the Germanic nations by the force of the Arabs and the Turks, he slowly crept into Christianity and undermined Christian, Christian institutions with anti-Christian ideas. And since they initially failed to flood Europe with the beasts, it was the Jew who ultimately convinced the popes to bring Europe to the beasts, something which has always been a Jesuit agenda. So a universal doctrine 
which was at one time only universal to the civilized world, was transformed into a multiracial doctrine, and the churches of Europe were prepared to accept the ideologies of the humanist revolutions, once they were convinced that they should humanize the beasts. From this point, Christianity was being offered along with bribes to the alien races to have them behave in compliance with Christian expectations. When they refused to comply, it was forced upon them with the sword, just like Islam. But these attempts to civilize the savages were not Christian at all. Rather, they were the workings of converso Jews among the Jesuits and the imperialist popes. Jewish mercantile interests in Spain and Portugal, which had soon relocated to Holland and England, and the later post-Reformation rulers of Europe who sought influence abroad in competition with the popes. Eventually, such religious imperialism disaffected most European Christians who have no affinity with the savages that the churches insisted upon taming. Ever since the colonial period, the churches have cared more for the aliens than they have for their own people. This is the big picture of medieval European history, which is missed by all of the blind mainstream academics. Adolf Hitler understood this problem with the churches of Europe. Therefore, he wrote in Mein Kampf, in Volume 2, Chapter 2, how devoid of ideals and how ignoble is the whole contemporary system. He knew that this was not traditional Christianity. This, despite of the churches in this whole contemporary system did not erode his faith in God and Christ. He knew the churches were corrupt. He goes on to say, the fact that the churches join in the committing this sin against the image of God, Hitler properly believed that the Aryan man, which we in Christian identity identify as the Adamic man, to be the image of God. And that the churches were joining in this sin against the image of God by caring more for the beasts. And he said, even though they continue to emphasize the dignity of that image is quite in keeping with their present activities, referring to the sin against the image. They talk about the spirit, but they allow man, as the embodiment of the spirit, to degenerate to the proletarian level. They then look on with amazement when they realize how small is the influence of the Christian faith in their own country and how depraved and ungodly is this riffraff which is physically degenerate and therefore morally degenerate also. To balance this state of affairs, they 
try to convert the Hottentots and the Zulus and the Kathirs and to bestow on them the blessings of the church. While our European people, God be praised and thanked, are left to become the victims of moral depravity, the pious missionary goes out to Central Africa and establishes missionary stations for Negroes. Finally, sound and healthy, though primitive and backward, people will be transformed under the name of our higher civilization into a motley collection of lazy and brutalized mongrels. And this is exactly what we see in those same churches today. They haven't changed. They would have been forced to change if Hitler won. The religious chaos which has resulted from this perversion of Christianity is due to the complete corruption of Judaized Christian churches with a satanic worship of the universal brotherhood of man characterized by the cries of the so-called French Revolution for liberty, equality, and fraternity. The destruction of Christian institutions with satanic Jewish humanism over the last 200 years has prepared Christendom for the onslaught which it is now suffering. The devils deceived the West into exporting Christianity to the beasts so that they could ultimately facilitate the original objective of flooding all of Christendom with beasts. The early Jewish instigation of pagan imperial Rome to persecute Christians, and then the Arab, Mongol, and Turkic wars against the European nations after Europe had turned to Christ, are all parts of the same ongoing agenda to destroy Christianity, orchestrated by the same satanic Jew. It is described quite succinctly in Revelation chapter 12. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Nearly all of the major internal wars of European history were also instigated by Jewish influences, either in religion or in commerce, exacerbating the problems with the continual struggles between kings and popes. Now the culmination of the serpent's flood is evident today, and that is also described in Revelation chapter 20. There we read that Satan shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about. And if anybody doubts that the Jews collectively are Satan, and that the Jews fit this description, all you have to do is go to YouTube and watch Barbara Spector, Annette Kahane, and a thousand other Jews who stand behind, who instigate, who have been responsible for the modern immigration policies in the Western world.
And this is the point where Christendom, Christendom is at now. The camp of the saints is not only surrounded, but it is being overrun. As a parallel description in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 also portrays. However, rather than discuss the outcome, because we do have the victory, we will instead discuss how Christians who are not Judaized should perhaps react to the reality of the situation. Of course, we must remain under the assumption that professing Christians also accept what their Bibles say, and we shall continue under that assumption. As Paul of Tarsus had stated several times, the promises of God cannot be made of no effect. Making those statements, Paul did not refer to the promises of Jesus, but rather to the promises of God, meaning the promises attributed to the Old Testament God. To see them, one must read through the Old Testament. In a survey of those promises, we see that one man's seed, or offspring, were to inherit the world, or the Adamic society of that time, and that they would become as the stars of heaven in multitude. But the bastards that they created along the way would not be accepted. From this point forward, the descendants of that man who were deemed eligible to inherit these promises were, for various reasons, narrowed to one in particular, to Jacob, from whom sprang the twelve tribes of Israel. As late as Acts chapter 26, Paul attests that the promises of Christ are for those same twelve tribes, and stated that the Jews were in opposition to those promises. Now to those who are inclined to Jewish egalitarianism, you may object immediately, citing one of the promises to Abraham, where in Genesis chapter 12 it says, that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. However, they neglect to consider that all the families who would be blessed could only be those Adamic families descended from Noah, which had just been described a few verses earlier in Genesis chapter 11. If the Bible speaking and defines all the families in Genesis chapter 11 as the descendants of Noah, then when you get to Genesis chapter 12 and it says all the families, you can't imagine it to mean any families other than those in Genesis chapter 11. You can't rake in other families outside of the scriptural context and include them in that also if God didn't mean it that way. And that's why God listed those families and called them all the families in Genesis chapter 11. It can be proven historically that all of these families were originally white and that all modern whites descended from these families, although most of them have since been destroyed, having become mixed with non-white races. No matter what one may think of the first nine chapters of Genesis, the historical record 
from Genesis chapter 10 and forward is quite clear. Even Ethiopians and Egyptians were originally white and from medieval times Christians thought otherwise because they got their information from medieval Jewish rabbis and the lies have been repeated ever since. The classical records and archaeology prove that even they were white. Some may also object that the flood of Noah covered the whole earth, and therefore all people must have originated from the descendants of Noah. But that is not true. Just a few chapters after the descendants of Noah are listed in Genesis, we find the descendants of the giants, who are the Rephaim, and the descendants of Cain, who are the Canites, as well as some other tribes which did not descend from Noah, which are not listed in Genesis chapter 10, but which are alive and well in the time of Abraham, and which are listed in Genesis chapter 15, just five short chapters after the descendants of Noah are listed. These other races survived the flood simply because they were not in the whole earth which the flood had destroyed. The whole earth does not mean the whole planet. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain was driven from the face of the earth that was later destroyed in the flood, proving that he was somewhere else and that the flood did not cover the entire planet but rather only the whole earth where the children of Seth had dwelt, the earth which Cain was driven away from. Unless, of course, one wants to think that perhaps Cain was taken to another planet. That is how ridiculous the idea is that the whole planet could have been flooded. It's incredible that identity Christians are divided over all the families of Genesis chapter 12 when all the families are listed in Genesis chapter 11 or that the whole earth only means an entire region and not the entire planet when Cain's descendants and the Rephaim giants could survive a flood without being on the ark they just weren't in that whole land they were in a different land. So the promise to Abraham that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed could only have pertained to those white families, those Adamic families listed in Genesis chapter 10. No, you cannot squeeze a nigger into Genesis chapter 10 or a Chinaman. Just like Hitler couldn't make them Germans. But this promise was also secondary to the promises that Abraham's offspring would become many nations and that they would inherit the earth. As Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 and elsewhere, the white nations of Europe, which arose after the time of Abraham, are the actual children of Jacob Israel and the heirs to those promises. 
The first objective of Christian identity should be, of course, to confirm the identity of the heirs of those promises in the world today and the destiny which is assured to those same people in biblical prophecy. As for the other non-white races, their creation is not mentioned in the Bible. Don't squeeze them into the beasts. Don't squeeze them into Genesis 1.26. They are not there. And there is no plan for their benefit ever mentioned in the Bible. We only see the promised destruction of all of those who come into contact with the children of Israel. First, in the historical books of scripture, as the Israelites had invaded the land of Canaan. And then, in the prophetic books of scripture, where the Israelites were being scattered abroad. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 30, the word of Yahweh God promises, in reference to the children of Israel, that he would make a full end of all nations where he had scattered them, but that he would not make a full end of them, instead only correcting them in their punishment. This promise is repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46. The scripture relates a similar message in Isaiah chapter 41, where it says to the scattered children of Israel, Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. And they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shalt not find them. There's your concern for the other races. Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them. Even them that contended with thee, they that war against thee, shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. We don't save niggers. We pray for the fulfillment of that prophecy. As the Apostle John had written to those having the promise of salvation, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. In the entire scripture, all of the promises of salvation are for the children of Israel, and there are no promises of salvation for any of the other so-called races. Honest theology is the study of the covenants and promises of God, and it may be referred to as covenant theology, which is the only valid theology, since the promises of God cannot be made of no effect. Unless, of course, one worships an entirely different God than Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures. In essence, Christian identity is the covenant theology identifying the parties to those covenants and promises in Scripture and in history. So it is the study of the fulfillment of covenant theology. That's what Christian identity is. Since there is no plan for the other non-white races in the Bible, all the goats go into the lake of fire. All the sheep go to the kingdom of heaven. All the tares get cut down and tossed in the fire. All the wheat go into the kingdom of heaven. Since there is no plan for the other non-white races in the Bible to attempt to include them in the plan, or to imagine and create a plan for them, 
is to pretentiously add to the word of God. The only thing we know about the other races is that wherever the children of Israel are, those nations that are not the children of Israel will be made a full end of. Everything that God created is good, as it is described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But if the other races are not mentioned in those chapters, how can men imagine them to be good as well? In the parables and sayings of Christ found in the Gospel, there are good kinds and there are bad kinds. Sheep which are preserved and goats which are destroyed, grapes and thorns, figs and thistles, wheat planted by him and tares planted by the devil. And yes, there are people, according to Christ, who were planted by the devil. What we are not told in Genesis, we are told in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Christ himself told us, he came to other things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So, don't expect to find them in Genesis. In the Revelation, in chapter 12, we read, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That old serpent is that old serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who, as we see clearly in that chapter, was a representative. He was the agent for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the Adamic man was not ever supposed to touch. But he did touch it. And in his punishment, when he planted his seeds, thorns and thistles would spring up. These are the thorns... And these are the thistles which Christ warned his apostles against, which he told them not to gather either grapes or figs from, because you can't gather grapes from figs figs or thorns from thistles. Do you really think Christ was talking about fruit? He was talking about men and the nature of men. Thorns and thistles were created in sin. Christ had also described these as tares among the wheat because the sons of Adam and the later children of Israel had accepted those branches of the tree of knowledge of good and evil producing those thorns and thistles. Therefore the later children of Israel were told that because they did not exterminate them they would be thorns and pricks to them in their sides and in their eyes. Did the nature of the enemies change? No. The natural result is that if these people are planted by the devil and their thorns and thistles, that they would continue to prick us if we did not exterminate them. They would continue to be thorns and pricks to the children of Israel because they did not exterminate them. They did not holocaust the bastards out of existence in the time of Joshua. The only illustration in scripture which explains the origin of the non-Adamic races is Revelation chapter 12 and the early presence of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
which there's no record of God creating, as opposed to the tree of life, which was already present in the garden of God when Adam was created. Both trees were already there. This is how, as it is described in Revelation chapter 12, the serpent had the ability to cast a flood from its mouth for which to pursue the woman, because that flood is from that evil tree associated with the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, the Jew, the international eternal Jew, was the agent of the tree of the knowledge of the good good and evil in Genesis chapter 3, and that same eternal Jew is the agent of these other races who are the flood from the mouth of the serpent today. Draw the lines and draw them straight. So the Apostle Peter speaks of the interlopers amongst the amongst the Adamic children of Israel, those spots in their feast of charity. And he calls them natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. And referring to those same wicked men, Jude likewise calls them trees, perhaps trees of the knowledge of good and evil, trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, because they have not the Spirit of God. Many of the Judaized egalitarians who call themselves identity Christians have accepted the old British Israel concept of dominion theology. This is a theology developed to promote imperialism first put into practice by the Roman Catholic Church under the guidance of the Jesuits, but later adopted and adapted by British Israel believers to support the legitimacy of the structure of the British Empire. When the empire collapsed, it became evident that the British did not have a mandate to rule over the other races, and British Israel became a laughingstock, wholly discredited. It deserves to be. They're all a bunch of circus clowns. Today, it is even more discredited, because the other races, which were formerly subjects, are now running roughshod over Britain, and British Israel adherents have no sufficient answer for that development. They still claim to their old dominion theology, even though today the niggers are ruling over them. So maybe it's not British Israel after all. Maybe it's nigger Israel, and the Brits should be the slaves. Of course, that's not true. But that's the way British Israel should now depict the problem if they want to cling to their fantasy world view of the Bible and history. Totally out of touch with reality and inviting their own destruction. How is Christian identity relevant in today's society? How can we help to steer Christian identity down a path which is useful to our nation and race in these last days? 
How about by telling the truth about race? Because the promises of God are only for one particular race. And because the promises of destruction are for all other races. If we do not face the entire truth concerning the issue of race, we cannot all attain to the unity of the faith to which Paul beckons us in Ephesians. But rather, we shall continue being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception as he had also described in that very same epistle. But if we believe that Christian identity is true, then we must by obligation provide the solid foundation for which to survive the trials that all of what was formerly known as Christendom now faces, or we will fail in our mission for Christ. However, in the end, Christ shall succeed with us or without us. So, what we must ask is, where do we want to be? Quoting from our recent presentation of the Epistle to the Ephesians, which is somewhat edited here, Paul had told the Galatians, who were indeed a portion of the descendants of the Israelites, that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians eight centuries before that epistle was written, that God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And all Israelites were at one time under the law of Yahweh their God. But because of their sins, they were subject to judgment under that law after they had been alienated from that God. However, in the divine mercy which Yahweh had promised to the children of Israel, Paul also told them, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, one is no longer an infant. Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, one no longer needs a schoolmaster, but should gladly endeavor to keep the commandments of God. That's why you go to school, to keep what you learn there. So you don't no longer need a schoolmaster to forget the commandments of God. You no longer need a schoolmaster because you graduated. Dumbasses. Nobody realizes that. As Christ himself said, If you love me, keep my commandments. The last commandment which Christ had given us was that Christians must love one another. And they cannot do that while trying to love the other races. For whom Christ had not come, they did not have the law. They did not have that schoolmaster. They cannot keep his law. History proves that again and again and again. Niggers going to church on Sunday are holding up liquor stores on Monday. Christ said, He not gathering with me is a scatterer. Men should not attempt to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. 
Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, it must be realized that the common bond of unity in the faith begins with the fact that the faith is only for those of the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel, which is consistent with the words of the apostles and the prophets. As he described this very same thing, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, that the body of Christ was founded upon the apostles and the prophets. Anything contrary to the word of God in the promises to Abraham and the words of the prophets does not belong to the gospel, but rather it belongs to the system of deception created by the enemies of God, which of course is also spoken of by Paul in that epistle. Reading the words of the apostles together with the prophets... The Word of God presents a clear narrative focused on a particular family, beginning with the promises to Abraham that his seed would become many nations and that they would inherit the earth. Examining that narrative, if we observe the words of the apostles and the prophets, then we must accept that the people who are the called in Christ were those whom the Old Testament informs us would be called and that the saints are those whom the Old Testament informs us are saints. I've never read anything in the prophets that tells me that niggers are called and saints, that Chinamen or, or Indians or squat monsters or any other race could be the called or the saints. So Paul refers to a family of the faith as the household of the mystery because up until Paul's time it was a mystery as to how those promises to Abraham were kept and that was the mystery which Paul was commissioned to reveal. Therefore Paul had professed concerning this same faith in Romans chapter 4 that the promise was indeed certain to all of the seed meaning all of the people who descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel as Paul explains in another way in Galatians chapter 3. None of that seed was outside of the people, the white nations of the Mediterranean basin and Europe. Paul never seeking that seed, wrote any sort of epistles to Kafirs, Hottentots, Zulus, Bushmen, Arab bastards, Indian Rajas. You won't find one. There's no epistle of Paul to the Eskimos. The prophet Daniel promises us that the kingdom shall not be left to other people, meaning to anyone other than the children of Israel. Therefore, the kingdom of God is meant for none but the children of Israel. Who should attempt to give it to other people? That man is a serpent and an adversary to God. When you defend the other races... You're playing the role of agent to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are playing the role that the serpent played in Genesis chapter 3. The Judaized egalitarians, who are indeed within Christian identity today, 
would make the claim that the children of Israel are to convey the law to the other races, thereby being God's servant race. This is the claim of the rodeo clown, Ted Wheeland, that we spoke about with Pastor Downey. In truth, Yahweh had indeed called the children of Israel his servants, and they were his servants in order that they would establish his kingdom, not the kingdom of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nowhere in scripture is it written that his kingdom would include the alien, non-Adamic races. In fact, they were never, ever supposed to receive the law. And not even the other Adamic nations were given a law, as it says in Psalm 147. He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. So what is the psalmist's reaction to this? That the other races never got his law? The psalmist said, Praise ye Yahweh. The psalmist, there in that psalm, we see the psalmist praise Yahweh, God, for not giving the other nations his law. So the psalmist's attitude towards the other nation, nations was, screw you. That's what his attitude was. F off. How about that one? He was happy as hell. The other nations did not get his law. So these egalitarians within Christian identity, these people like Ted Wheeland, Eli James, oh, we're supposed to teach the other races his law. These people are little more than social justice warriors. And they are attempting to rip the bread out of the hands of the children and throw it on the floor and call it crumbs. They're not crumbs. That's robbery. They're nothing but social justice warriors. That's what they are. They're Jewish egalitarians assuming to be Christian identity. They're no better than the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The laws of God commanded the children of Israel to be a separate people, as we read in the words of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance. And this comes right from the pages of Exodus. As thou spoke by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Yahweh God. This commission is not changed, as Peter had likewise repeated these same ideas and told his Christian audience in 1 Peter chapter 2 that ye are a chosen race. I know the King James Version says generation. But then there would be no more Christians after that generation. They'd all be dead because only they were chosen. Ye are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And to prove that he was writing to the anciently dispersed children of Israel and not to any replacement Israelites is found in a verse which follows where he cited a passage from Hosea chapter 1 that can only concern the anciently dispersed Israelites where it says which in time past were not a people this is a prophecy Hosea makes of the children of Israel. Ye are not my people, but in a place where it is said to them that ye are not be my people, there you shall be called the sons of the living God. Peter is explaining to these people that he writes to that this is what happened to them, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, the children of Israel, who were taken off into deportations, but have now obtained mercy, because they're the same children of Israel being accepted back in Christ. These things were specifically prophesied of Israel in Hosea chapter 1, using that same exact language. So how can the children of Israel teach the other so-called races the law, while being a separate people? The two ideas cannot agree, and therefore one of them is false. In Genesis, the sons of Noah are told that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. And likewise, the children of Israel were told, as it is in Joshua chapter 23, that one man of you shall chase a thousand, for Yahweh your God, he it is that fights for you as he has promised you. In respect to this, Paul of Tarsus had written in his epistle to the Hebrews that by faith the ancient children of Israel had subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the judgment of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. If turning the armies of the aliens to flight was no longer relevant in Christ, why would Paul even mention it as a feat performed out of faith? He didn't say, and taught the armies of the aliens the law. No, he turned them to flight. Praise ye Yahweh. And if that was a feat performed out of faith back then, Paul himself offers it as an example for Christians today. If King David was a type for Christ, as so many of the prophets admit, and even as so many Judeo-Christian Judeo-Christians today admit, pastors and otherwise, if King David was a type for Christ as king, as so many of the prophets admit, then we have Psalm 118 as our example in this same regard, where it says, The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire on them that hate me. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in man.
It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about. Now, take that and go look at Revelation chapter 20, where all nations encompass the camp of the saints as the international Jew arranges for them. All nations compass me about. But in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. You think of that the next time you look across the the store you're in, or the workplace you're at, or the street curb that you're standing on, and you see a Mexican. You think of this. All nations compass me about. You think about this the next time you're downtown and there's a pack of niggers. But in the name of Yahweh, will I destroy them? They compass me about. Yeah, they compass me about. But in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees, and they are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh, I will destroy them. I won't teach them the law. I'll destroy them. Thou hast thrust thrust sore at me that I might fall, but Yahweh help me. Yahweh is my strength in song, and it has become my salvation. As the camp of the saints is surrounded by the enemies of Christ, as the children of Christ are trodden down by all of those nations which Satan has gathered against them, this is the only salvation which the children of Israel can hope for or expect. As it also says in Luke chapter 1, that his purpose is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This message is the Elijah message which Christ had said shall come before the coming of the Son of Man, which is described in Malachi chapter 4, where it is said that he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. This is the only way that the Christian identity message can possibly be relevant in today's corrupted society. And Christian identity is the only valid Christianity. All of the other Christian denominations absolutely neglect covenant theology and do everything they can to make the promises of God of none effect. Any other message than this regarding race actually accepts the false doctrines of Jewish egalitarianism. And to be accepting of the flood which has come forth from the mouth of the serpent, which is the presence of so many racial aliens throughout the nations once called Christendom. Any other message is to be lukewarm, where Christ had said in the Revelation, in chapter 3, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. But I wish you were hot or cold. 
But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Being lukewarm is to compromise, and scripture does not compromise. If you want to be an agent for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be identified as the serpent that you are. We who can articulate an understanding of covenant theology have an obligation imposed upon us by our understanding. We must help to prepare our race for the wedding supper of the Lamb. But we must also know and acknowledge that all of those who are not a party to Israel the Bride shall be dinner for the beasts and the fowls of heaven as it is described in Revelation chapter 19. Go read Revelation chapter 19. The wedding supper of the Lamb is not a party and is very similar language between Revelation chapter 19 and Ezekiel chapter 39 where Yahweh God has promised that all of those invading amongst his people in these last days shall indeed be destroyed. The wedding supper of the Lamb is not a party but rather it is described as a great war. As the word of Yahweh our God promises in Obadiah chapter, in Obadiah verses 15 through 18, all of the other races, as well as the Jews, shall be as though they had not been. This is not only the proper Christian identity objective, but it is also the true Christian obligation. As for Adolf Hitler, read Mein Kampf. His war was our war. He fought against international Jewry in defense of the German people, a people who would have been destroyed just as thoroughly in the decadence of Weimar and the designs of the Soviet Jews for world expansion. If we as a people are ashamed of Adolf Hitler, then the next step is that we should also be ashamed of the word of our God and the gospel of Christ. We should instead be joining in the fight against international Jewry and defending the remnant of our race as it is today. That is the Christian struggle, even if Hitler himself did not understand it with that same perspective. The social justice warriors within Christian identity today deny the biblical truth in relation to the alien races, and they also despise Hitler and National Socialist Germany. And while we have no idols, we must not despise our fallen comrades. Rather, their resurrection is for the glory of our God. In any event, whether we love Hitler or hate him, the Jews will label us as Nazis simply because we are Christians. So like Hitler, even the Jews understand Christianity better than today's so-called theologians and clergymen. To be victorious in this war, whether we ourselves as individuals see the end of it or not, 
Like Hitler, we too must keep our faith steadfast until the end and never give up the fight even until death. But we must also have a clear vision as to who the enemies of our race are and who the people who are being preserved in Christ are. Without that clear vision, how do you know what to keep and what to toss aside? Of the ten virgins in the parable of the virgins, five were prepared and the other five, they were caught off, stranded in the markets, losing their opportunity to engage with the bridegroom because they had no oil for their lamps. We must not aspire to that same fate. We must establish a Christian identity which stands on solid ground and has solid, unshaking, biblical conviction. And that means getting recent history and the race issue right. Thank you for listening and good night. Praise Yahweh.